0: Brian Stanton here with ASEP Frontline, joined today by Dr. Caroline Fryermuth. and we're talking today about the sickle cell point of care. Now, we've had a couple of podcasts in the past discussing sickle cell management in the emergency department and uh, as part of the expanded point of care tools that we have uh, in emergency medicine and as part of the offerings from the American College of Emergency Physicians. This is one that is uh, coming up and uh, will be part of the uh, repertoire of uh, of point-of-care tools uh, that we have available at our disposal. So uh, thank you for joining us. Give us a little uh, background on uh, you, your practice, and uh, jump us into the sickle cell.
1: Sure. So I'm an associate professor of emergency medicine at the University of Cincinnati. I am chair-elect of the Emergency Department Sickle Cell Care Coalition, or EDSC-3 for short, And our goal was really to bring together um, emergency physicians and talk about how do we improve and standardize care for patients with sickle cell disease across the country. So one of the common complaints we get when we speak to people who have sickle cell disease and their caregivers and their advocates is they never know what to expect when they go to the emergency department. Um, Each individual encounter seems to be completely different. There's no standardization. They never know, you know, how they're going to be treated or what medications to expect or what adjuncts to expect. And they really say that, you know, it continues to be a poor experience overall. There's a lot of stigma, um, you know, involved. When they go into the emergency department, many people look at them and say, oh, you're just here for drugs. There's nothing really wrong with you. And so our goal was really how do we change that perception and how do we raise awareness about the underlying disease that sickle cell disease is and how best to treat that amongst emergency physicians? We know that sickle cell disease affects about 90,000 people in the United States, which Is not a huge amount, right? And so you can imagine that um, amongst emergency department visits, it accounts for a very small percentage of overall visits. And so how do we make people knowledgeable so that they know how to treat this and patients can know what to expect to come in?
0: So you mentioned it just right off the top there, um, part of the um, aspect of the tool, the first and foremost is the communication and um, you know that one of the things i think we always try to do in emergency medicine is try to determine the legitimacy of somebody's complaint so there's no real vital sign changes or lab values to confirm or rule out a sickle cell pain crisis in fact talking to um, another emergency physician just before this recording um, and talking about the fact that uh, you know no matter what we have in terms of lab values or or vital sign values that does not uh, that does not define uh, the accuracy, legitimacy, uh, or, whatnot, or whatnot of that presentation. So, um, you know, it, the nice thing about a point-of-care tool is it, it gives expertise guidelines uh, to areas like my own where we don't have a huge uh, sickle cell disease uh, burden. Uh, we don't have a lot of patients. We don't have a ton of experience. You know, we have, we have some that we see and that we know, and most are on a treatment plan of some uh, nature. But, you know, not not near the numbers we see in certain areas of the country. So this does allow, um, allow a tool uh, in order to help guide our management in the emergency department. So give us a little breakdown of that initial communication um, with the patient report of pain is the gold standard.
1: Definitely. And so we really just want physicians and, you know, ED staff to create, you know, a good relationship with the patient, which is what I think most of us try to do, right? Most of us went into medicine because we want to help people. But one of the biggest myths that we run into is, you know, well, this person can't be in pain. And we hear that a lot. Um, You know, people over the years have struggled with, you know, how do you tell when people are in pain? Um, Because it's such a subjective thing. And many of us have grown to rely on, you know, well, their blood pressure needs to be elevated if they're in pain or their heart rate needs to be up if they're in pain. They need to look like they're in pain. Um, and yet we have told all of these patients who have sickle cell disease, and we know that pain is the number one symptom that is really just, you know, a symptom of the underlying disease process. So we know in sickle cell disease, their blood cell- cells become misshapen they become more sticky they you know block off blood flow and they basically have these microvascular areas that aren't getting blood flow and that's what's causing all this pain but really it is just a symptom of that underlying disease process and pain is what we need to treat until we can figure out how to treat that underlying process.
0: Interestingly some Interesting, as you mentioned, some of the data uh, out there, um, and I think it's important to address it because I think one of the stigmas that is out there is that a a large number of sickle cell uh, disease sufferers um, are pain seeking or opioid seeking. uh, But one of the one of the nice little bullet points here. Um, opioid use stable within the SCD population from 08 to 13, which is when we saw a huge spike across the United States and deaths from opioid overdoses was uh, around or under uh, 10 per year in individuals with uh, sickle cell disease from 99 to, to 13 uh, making up a very small number. So I think you know just just demonstrating that uh, the population, uh, is not the opioid burden that that we that many out there with the stigmas and, and whatnot are are assuming, and that uh, this really is an incredibly uh, painful process, as you mentioned, with the mycovascular occlusions um, and sickling in in aspect of of the pain crisis, uh, it, it, as you were saying.
1: Well, I was just going to say, you know, if you think about it, you know, most of these patients, by the time they become adults, are on chronic daily opioids which we all know are now heavily regulated right um they aren't just written for willy-nilly most of these patients are under a pain contract they're followed by one hematologist primary care physician whoever it is they can get to care for them in their area and so you know it really is um hard to you know go out there and you know be that person that's just going to go around and get lots of prescriptions unless you don't have regular care because otherwise you're locked into, you know, these pain agreements. And the other thing I was going to say about, you know, their chronic pain state is over the years we've asked people in the primary care setting, you know, let's talk about how to deal with your pain on a daily basis. And we've asked them to come up with mechanisms to do that. You know, we say try meditation, try distraction with your phone try, you know, warm compresses, you know, do these things. And then yet when people utilize what we've asked them to do, they often get punished. And so, you know, I often hear, well, they can't possibly be in pain. You know, they're talking to somebody on the phone or they're watching TV. They don't look like they're in pain when really, you know, that's just a distraction technique for them. And they're doing the best they can to manage the pain. The other thing is, if you think about it, you know, many of these patients live with a daily pain level. And that's one of the things that I always ask patients, you know, I say on a regular day when you're not having a crisis, what what is your typical pain level? So I kind of know my end goal. Where am I trying to get them back to? For most people, that's not going to be zero. And so knowing where they live will kind of tell you, you know, they're so used to chronic pain that even though they're having acute pain on top of it you know, they may not process pain like the normal person because they've already lived with it on a daily basis. And so they may not have, you know, that elevated blood pressure or the elevated heart rate um, because of the way they process it.
0: Let's move through the tool on the front, on the entrance of the emergency department, the front door or or, uh, on on initial triage. Let's walk through the uh, triage bullet points uh, of the tool.
1: Acknowledge that the patient is there for pain. We want to make sure that they know, you know, hey, you know, we know that you're here today because you're in a lot of pain. We believe you're in pain, is that that first, you know, real communication point. And then for triage, right? Triage is meant to be quick and dirty, right? The triage nurses we all know are getting inundated right now. We are trying to move people through as fast as we can. And so, really, we just want to identify anything that could really indicate you know, a a big underlying complication. So what we're trying to rule out is the complications at triage. And so we're screening for fever, we're screening for, you know, the tachycardia that could indicate an underlying infection, or, you know, be a symptom of a pulmonary embolus or acute chest syndrome. um, And really just trying to pick out those pieces so that we know, okay, who might need more than just pain control?
0: Looking at some of these uh, key points, definitely not delaying care, high index of suspicion, uh, assigning the ESI score level of two um, associated with the pain level um, and high risk situations. Looking at the frequency or um, overall stability of their sickle cell disease, their history, the worrisome context. Of course, we always worry about the chest pain, shortness of breath, fever. Um, hypotension, uh, tachycardia, those types of things associated with sickle cell disease that may have an increased risk of, or may indicate an increased risk of morbidity and mortality. Um, And getting back into that, but, uh, you know, that that suggestion and consideration of alternate spaces, uh, getting pain medications on board, starting that treatment early, which is a big deal now for us because, you know, all of us are dealing with um, the volumes and, and the difficulties, in having rooms available, um, and, and increased waiting times in the emergency department. This is not going to be a patient population that we park in the lobby as a as a ESI four, and you know wait until everything but the uh, the toe fungus has come back to get checked out in the emergency department. What are some? There's actually two sets of history that is listed here within the point of care tool. What are those history points that we're really focusing on when these folks come to see us in the emergency department?
1: Sure. I just want to circle back to one thing on triage real quick, you know, that you touched on. And and this is one of those controversial things, right? We get a lot of pushback when we go and say, really, these patients should be an ESI level 2, meaning, you know, like the ESI 1s or, you know, the gunshot wounds, the people who are, you know, circling death's door. And the ESI 2 is really, you know... These people have the potential to get really sick. And we just want to remind people of that, that the morbidity and mortality of sickle cell disease is so incredibly high and, you know, so under-recognized. You know, people do not remember that most patients with sickle cell disease Will die in their 40s. I mean, their lifespan is just incredibly short compared to the normal, um, you know, American. And so we want people to remember, you know, you may think of this as a silent disease, but you know, because of these ongoing microvascular incidents where they're not getting blood flow, you know, these people are having strokes early their kidneys, um, you know, die off, and they end up on dialysis, you know, in their 30s and 40s. And so we just really want people to keep that at the forefront of their mind. And I hear you, I work in a very busy emergency department, we have the nursing shortage that everyone else does right now. And so reminding people that, you know, while it's ideal, you know, to get patients in a room as quickly as possible, we know that that's not always the case. And so really, we just want to people to think a little bit creatively you know there are many medications coming out for the management of sickle cell disease long term and trying to prevent these crises but there's still not really medications that are used for the acute management of sickle cell disease other than pain medications and so really just trying to make sure that people realize that you know all of the hematology national organizations really, you know, stress, we need to get pain medication in quickly. And so in order to do that, we need to be a little bit more creative. So on the pediatric side, they use a lot of intranasal fentanyl and then I'll the adult side, we can think about, you know, can we start doing subcutaneous dosing of opioids um, until we get them back? You know, can we see people in a vertical triage way or, you know, um, an internal waiting room type place? Um, remembering that, you know, again, most of these patients are not opioid naive. And so, you know, in order to give them opioids, you probably don't need to worry about, you know, having them hooked up to a pulse ox and a heart rate monitor and, and all those things. Because again, for for these people, who are on chronic opioids, they likely, um, you know, the doses we're giving them are not going to cause, you know, respiratory depression um, in their patient population.
0: Give us some of the background on uh, some of the key history points and evaluation uh, when they're sitting there in front of us.
1: Sure. Um, And so really, we broke history into two parts in a way to acknowledge that Um, you know, patients in pain may have a difficult time, right? Um, You know, not that many of us emergency physicians spend 20 minutes taking a history by any means. um, But even, you know, too many questions right off the bat um, are just a little overwhelming when you're in excruciating pain. Remember, most of these patients have had bad experiences in the emergency department in the past. And so they wait really long and they've tried a lot of things at home before they come in. And so making sure that, you know, that initial history, you're really just trying to get the most important points, you know, so when did this pain start? You know, where are you hurting? And then we want to know is this different than normal for you? And so, you know, many of these patients, again, you know, this is not the first time they've had a pain crisis. And so we want to know, you know, when you typically have these vasoocclusive episodes, is it always in your chest? Is it always in your joints? You know, is this different than the crises you've experienced in the past? And if they say yes, you want to take that much more seriously, Um, you know, is something more going on than just their typical painful episode? Um, If they say, you know, this is not where I typically have pain. So say normally I have pain in my knees and now today it's in my chest. You really want to, you know, raise those hairs on the back of your neck and think, oh, okay, like what more do I need to delve into to make sure this is not an acute chest episode? Um, And then we want to know, you know, of course, for safety reasons, you know, what medicines have you already tried at home? And then one of the things we want to know, you know, is what pain medications work for you, right? And this is another thing where where people kind of get shot in the foot, right? Because over the years, we've all been taught, oh, patients that ask for specific medications or specific doses, those are the people that are really drug-seeking. You shouldn't give them that. Um, But for somebody who has, you know, a recurrent painful disease... Oftentimes they will know what works. And so if they say that one medication works better than another, um, and then you simply refuse to do that, that sets up, you know, a a mistrust in that relationship. Um, and then, you know, really it is just hard to overcome for that visit and then for future visits. And so, you know, asking them, does something specific work? You know, is there anything else, you know, that we could do as well, um, you know, that might help treat this pain? So that's really you know, the first part of the history. And then again, stressing to them, you know, you're on their side. We're here. We want to treat your pain. You know, I'll come back and check on you. And then once, you know, you've had time to put in those initial orders, you've kind of got your evaluation started, you know, you can go in and, you know, delve a little bit farther into it. You know, what other medicines do you take for your um, sickle cell disease to, you know, try to decrease crises or or whatever in the future? Um, You know, who is your regular doctor? When's your next follow-up, um, you know, and ask some of the the history about other complications they've had in the past, you know, on the, are they on chronic blood transfusions, um, just to tell you a little bit more about, um, you know, the nature of their disease.
0: You've actually gotten into it a little bit uh, already with the early uh, initiation uh, treatment, looking at some of the other, uh, other administration techniques, whether it's the intranasal, intranasal fentanyl, IM approaches. Um, other things that may be available out there, but uh, that does get us to the next section of the point of care tool in terms of that treatment. Uh, Let's kind of roll through there before we get to what we're going to do with them uh, in terms of our disposition plan.
1: So, yes. Um, and you'll notice as you roll through this tool, um, you know, some things look redundant and that's on purpose because we expect some people will only look at certain sections. And so, um, you know, some of the things you may notice are, are in multiple sections, and that's just to make sure that that we capture them wherever people happen to look. Um, and so this treatment section, again, you know, highlights that, you know, we want pain medication in a timely manner. Um, and, you know, not just that first dose, but remember to redose, um, you know, so most opioids, you know, the, the peak effect, you're going to see at 20 or 30 minutes. And so, you know, if at 20 minutes, they're still in excruciating pain, and that didn't seem to do much, um, you know, it, it's safe to redose them at that point. And, and you know, know that um, you probably won't get a incredible you know stacking effect of those medications um, because you've kind of seen the peak effect you know by that 20 to 30 minute time mark and so making sure that we're getting back in the room we're reevaluating um, we're thinking about you know um, how to treat them you know ideally um, patients will have some sort of pain plan that has been you know developed by the institution by their hematologist by their primary care physician. But those tend to be really labor intensive. You know, somebody has to develop those, and then somebody has to update them. And so, really, that's not a widespread norm. And so, you know, we really encourage places, especially because you know sickle cell disease is not a frequent, um, you know, emergency department complaint when you look at all of the emergency department visits. So, we really recommend that each institution come up with their own, you know, sickle cell order set. Where really, you know, the physician or whatever ED staff member is caring for the patient doesn't really have to think through, okay, like, well, what meds at what doses? But if we can get a standardized order set, um, you know, and it can be, you know, weight-based, it can be patient specific, but you know, really reminding people here are the medications to choose from, here are the doses to go for, and give them some guidance so they don't, you know, have to think every time a new patient comes in. You know, we have in here some of the adjuncts for pain, you know, reminding people, you know, NSAIDs can be helpful, but again, remember that once these patients reach adulthood, many of them have some sort of renal dysfunction. And so we want to be a little bit more careful with those NSAIDs as they get older, um, and, and have that kidney dysfunction. You know, one of the things when I was in medical school was, you know, give oxygen and um, fluids to everyone. And we now know that, um, you know, fluids really should be given to patients who, you know, look dehydrated, but if they can drink, then let them drink. Um, You know, there have been some case reports of patients who get acute chest from fluid overload, um, you know, when they're just flooded with fluids. And so really thinking a little bit more, you know, about the individual patient, you know, Would they benefit from fluids? Would I do harm? Um, And then talking about, you know, some of the other non pharmacologic interventions, you know, talking to people about distraction or meditation or whatnot, again, probably not the best thing to approach, you know, right when somebody comes in and says, you know, my pain is a 10 out of 10. But as you get farther in that visit, you know, kind of talk about some of those other things. We do have some recommendations um, if people are able to start patient-controlled analgesia. Um, There have been some trials looking at PCAs versus, you know, um, just... IV bolus doses. And really, there doesn't seem to be an advantage. Um, But the advantage comes down to logistics, right? Um, We all know, you know, patient ratios are getting out of control right now, there's a nursing shortage, we're being overrun in the emergency department. And so it's really hard for nurses to get back in the room at 20 and 30 minutes and talk to people about their pain and redose them. And so oftentimes, these PCAs can give you that relief where patients can actually have, you know, um, the ability to administer themselves some of their own, um, medications. And then we know one of the frustrating things for both patients and ED staff is, you know, what about all these other opioid side effects? And, you know, this is again, where, you know, you get into trouble because, you know, Patients get these high doses of opioids, and then they complain about itching, and then people are like, oh, well, now they want me to mix Benadryl, and I don't want to do that. I think that's just, you know, trying to add to their high. Um, And so, you know, reminding people, you can give oral Benadryl, you can give hydroxyzine, you know, even try low-dose naloxone infusions, and everyone always thinks, oh my goodness, I'm not going to give somebody naloxone at the same time I'm giving them you know, opioids, that's just going to take away the effect, but there's actually quite a few studies out there that show if you do a low dose infusion, it will alleviate some of that itching without reversing the analgesic effect. Um, so, you know, something else to think about in your armamentarium, um, if you're doing that. And then again, with the nausea, you know, we hear when people ask for Finnergan on top of the Benadryl and the opioids, you know, that always raises red flags for the ED staff. And so thinking about some of the other, you know, less sedating medications for nausea. Um, You know, one of the questions we always get is, you know, ketamine. Um, You know, that seems to be the big drug right now where, you know, we can use ketamine for all kinds of things. Um, And, you know, the guidelines from the American Society of Hematology and NHLBI, um, you know, While none of them, um, you know, recommend ketamine, they also don't specifically, you know, prohibit it by any means or, you know, strongly come out against it. But really, there's just not great data right now um, to, you know, say yay or nay either way. Um, There are some inpatient studies looking at ketamine as an adjunct to opioids, but there's not really great data for the emergency department to say, you know, ketamine either as standalone or as an adjunct for opioids, um, you know, works better or works worse. And so, um, you know, we can't really weigh in on that. Um, but it's a common question we get. Um, we do know, you know, that, um, oxygen has not really been shown to, you know, decrease the, um, length of, you know, pain in a crisis and whatnot. And so, you know, again, not necessarily to throw every single patient on oxygen, um, and then just be careful with blood transfusions. And again, you know, this is one of those things where if you don't commonly interact with patients who have sickle cell disease, when their labs start coming back and you see that hemoglobin of six, seven, eight, um, you know, it always like get your eyebrows up a little bit. And you think, oh man, this person is super anemic. And so, really, you know, just a reminder to look back and see, you know, what is their baseline hemoglobin. And many patients will actually know as well. Um, and we want to be very cautious again before we give blood transfusions, you know, really best practice would be, you know, talk to their hematologist, talk to a specialist, um, because, you know, over the span of their lifetime, Uh, patients with sickle cell disease may get many blood transfusions. And then we worry about things like, you know, iron overload, and then they developed antibodies to blood products. And then when they really need a blood transfusion, um, it's really hard to match them because they've developed so many aloe antibodies. And so um, thinking much harder before, you know, starting blood transfusions um, and really leaning on your specialist to talk those through.
0: And then the last point um, is always kind of the key for emergency medicine, which is what am I going to do with the patient? And you have the, you know, of course, the admission opportunities versus observation and discharge. And the admission being, of course, if we're not uh, well controlling the symptoms, adequately controlling the symptoms, risk assessment, whether young or old, other risk factors for morbidity and mortality, things that are concerning, such as an infiltrate on chest X-ray, potential for serious infection, and then of course, with discharge planning. Um, can they p- manage the pain at home? A close follow-up with uh, their physician, hematology, um, or a, a sickle cell disease provider. Um, if we can get them into a, a follow-up, that way we can get them established on a on long-term regimen if they don't already have one, and a plan for that matter. And then ensuring adequate access to medications for pain management with the follow-up and return instructions are very clear, like we would with any patient, that comes uh, that comes through our doors Uh, this is all part of the new uh, edsc3 uh, tool for sickle cell disease within the emergency department Um, any any kind of closing uh, thoughts on the disposition the overall plan the the uh, point of care tool itself and then uh, wrap us up with uh, with contact information if people want any more information
1: Sure, um, and so you know, really, the disposition, you know, again, comes down to that communication piece. You know, really talking to the patient. How do you feel? Is this a pain level that you know you can live with? Um, you know, most of us as emergency physicians are really good at sick versus not sick, right? We don't need to be told like this person's sick; they need to be admitted. We we can recognize that. Um, but you know, again, because pain tends to be the presenting complaint, and it's so subjective, you know, many of us are willing to say, well, you know your labs are fine, your vital signs are fine. and I really think you can go home, um, you know, and tend to make that decision for patients. And then, you know, when they come back three times in the coming week, you know, we're like, oh, this person is just here drug seeking when really, you know, it's no, we didn't manage their pain appropriately the first time around. And now they're really just trying to feel better. And so making sure, you know, that that you do have that conversation with the patient, um, you know, making sure that they have some sort of follow-up. And again, you know, I am an emergency physician. I practice emergency medicine. And so I get, you know, at at some point we can't say that everything is our responsibility, um, you know, but but making sure that they have somewhere to go for follow-up and that they have, you know, some sort of pain management plan in the meantime um, to get themselves through. EDSC-3, um, if you search for EDSC-3, it's housed, you know, under ACEPS websites. This point-of-care tool will be released shortly, and it will be freely available on the web under ASAP's point-of-care tools. If you are an ASAP member, um, you will be able to download it onto your phone as well and carry it around with you wherever you go. Um, we will be promoting this in all sorts of ASAP channels to try to really get the message out there. We hope that people will forward you know, to their groups. Um, we are working with the American um, Academy of Family Practitioners as well, as we know, you know many Um, Rural emergency departments are still staffed um, by, you know, people who are not necessarily emergency medicine trained or, you know, not members of the American College of Emergency Physicians. And so we're really trying to get it out there. September is Sickle Cell Awareness Month, so there will be many um, educational activities going on. ASAP will have a webinar about sickle cell disease. The American Society of Hematology um, will be promoting lots of things on their Twitter feed, and so if you're looking to learn more about sickle cell disease, um, September is really a great month to do that um, because there will be a lot going on.
0: Talking with Dr. Uh, Caroline Framuth, and appreciate the time, appreciate the information. That's going to be another addition to the um, uh, to the toolbox of the EMPOC app. I still remember us having the first discussions of the EMPOC app uh, almost two years ago um, in Denver, Colorado, as it was released. And it does continue to grow and having more products and tools available for emergency physicians. And I, I really appreciate your time today. And thanks for joining us here on the uh, front line.
1: Great. Thanks so much for having me.
0: And as for me, you can contact me at R. Stanton at ASEP.ORG, R. Stanton at ASEP.ORG, or at Everyday Med on Twitter. Make sure that you're liking the page on Facebook for ASEP Frontline and that you're subscribed to the podcast so you get every weekly episode, sometimes more than once a week if something pops up. And until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and this has been some ASEP Frontline.